Well, we're, we're going to start week four of CTS, and in week four, we're going to do a whole week in the Psalms, and so I'm doing a little double duty here tonight. I gave a talk on Psalms 1 and 2 at the men's meeting, and uh, I want to do Psalm 1 and 2 again, actually one little part of Psalm 1 and 2 by way of introduction to all the Psalms. So we read them together because I want to suggest these Psalms are like one Psalm, or at least meant to be read together. They don't seem like it at first. They seem to have very different topics. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons that I really think they belong together. But I I want to suggest one thing, which is that if you pay attention to these two psalms, you see the entire cast of characters in the story that the psalms tell. And you see the entire cast of characters in the story that the Bible tells. And so let me just point out the various, if you will, characters that we see named in this psalm. The first one, obviously, is God himself. God who is bringing about good in his good world. God who laughs at those who plot against him and his Messiah. And that's the second character, the blessed man. The blessed man of Psalm 1 is the Messiah of Psalm 2, the one chosen by God to be his king and to be the judge of all the nations. He's God's chosen leader. He delights in God's teaching, and that's what makes him a good leader. That's what makes him the best king. And he is devoted to bringing God's intentions to pass. And then we see the third character or group of characters is the cynical, scoffing, rebellious kings who plot to remove God's leader and throw off his moral rules, to throw off all that he wants for life. They are the source of evil in the world. They're the source of what's wrong with the world. And then finally, the last character, if you will, is the congregation of the righteous mentioned at the end of Psalm 1. They're those who have taken refuge in the Messiah. They're those who have said, the blessed man, the one chosen by God to be his king, we want to give ourselves to him. We want to we give ourselves to him in allegiance and trust and faith. So those four characters, God, his Messiah, those who oppose him, and the congregation of the righteous, that's a succinct summary of the characters of Scripture. Um, And the question I want to ask tonight is, who are you in the story? Who, which, which group do you belong to in the story? Who do you think you are? So that's what I want to set up. Now I want to ask this broader question. And again, that is the question of who am I? Right? Who am I? And it's a really pressing question today because I think it's more pressing today in our world today. More and more people struggle with the question of who am I? What makes me, me? Am I defined by my gifts, the things I'm good at, whether it's athletics or maybe I'm funny or maybe there's some skill? Is that what makes me, me? Is it my roles? Father, husband, wife, sister. Is it my failures? Do my failures make me, me? Am I permanently defined by my failures? Is it my accomplishments, the things I've achieved, the things I've worked hard to do? And if it is my accomplishments, what happens if others do more and better than I do? What happens to my identity then? Is it my intelligence, what I think I possess of intellect? And what happens if through some tragedy I lose that? What happens to who I am? Have I I lost who I am? Is who I am in competition with others? Is it somehow something that 
uh, I have to define over against other people. And I want to suggest there's been sort of two broad ways, big and broad ways that people have, have understood who they are, have tried to figure out how I answer that question, who I am. And the first one, I, as I suggested a minute ago, is I'm born into a situation and I'm defined by the, ro- the roles that I find myself in. A son, a part of this family, uh, a husband, a father to these children, a part of this social network. That is who I am. I am defined by these things, whether it's Italian or, or we, again, whatever context I find myself in. Uh, and I would suggest this is kind of the conformist identity. I am who my circumstances determine that I am by birth. And it's something that for a, lar- a long stretch of world history, people define themselves by. This is, I am who I was born, the context I was born into, the family I was born into, the roles I was born to play. But another more recent answer to this question, and one that is all around us, we swim in it all the time, is to say that nobody tells me who I am. No one defines me. There's nothing outside of me that defines me. I look inside. I find out who I really am in my core, and I express that to the world. And I've got to resist any, and, and reject anything outside of me that might try to tell me who I am. And we might call this the individualist identity. And so we live in a world, hopefully you've noticed, maybe you've noticed, where you be you is our mantra. You be you is our, uh, is our whole sort of Uh, answer to the question, who am I? Well, you just be you. Find out who you are and you go your own way. All right. If you go to lyrics.com and look up, go your own way, there's over 500,000 popular songs with that line, go your own way. There have been ad campaigns from five or six major automotive companies saying, go your own way. I would say it is the standard uh, boilerplate orthodoxy as to how you answer the question, who am I? Well, you just go your own way, and that's that. But again, who am I? And if I go my own way because I've been told by thousands of songs and all kinds of commercials, am I not just another, in another conformist situation, conforming to the standard around me, saying, you do you? Am I not just conforming? Am I not just another cog in some kind of system? And by the way, we should note that go your own way is a very lucrative message. Everybody know what I mean? It sells everything. It sells cars. It sells phones. It sells pants. All right. There's a recent commercial by uh, a company, the General Pants Company. And their line is, listen to this. Led by none. All right, that's just another version of go your own way. Now, no, I mean, their line is led by none. So buy our pants. <laughs> led by none. You do your own thing and join the thousands and thousands of others who buy our pants and define themselves as such. It's a huge irony, right? It's this huge irony that we sell. You do you. You go your own way. And here's the heart of the matter, and here's the heart of the problem with this. The more free we think we are, the more we are led by the dominant beliefs in our culture. All right? The more free we think we are to define ourselves as we wish, the more we are led by the dominant beliefs in our culture. I'm going to read this from C.S. Lewis. 
The more I try to go my own way, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical body or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested by devils. Propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideas. I am not in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to think I am. Most of what I call me can very easily be explained. It is when I turn to Christ. Well, let me stop there. I don't want to ruin the punchline. Does that make sense, though? The more you do you, the more you are the subject of forces outside of yourself that you haven't even noticed. The more you, you follow your own way, the more you become influenced by other people's ideas. This is the huge irony. The more we try to be ourselves going our own way, the more who we are is the product of forces outside of us. So the line I want to look at in Psalm, uh, Psalm 1 and 2, or what I want to look at in Psalm 1 and 2, again, is who I, am I in this psalm? Who do I identify with? When I read this psalm, who am I? And at first, it appears that we are the blessed man, or we can be. Oh, blessed is the man. You can be happy. Uh, and, and here you follow these easy steps, and you too can be the blessed man. Voila. It's a technique. Follow these steps, and you'll be blessed. It's all in your hands, and you can do it. But this is a really important idea. The Bible is not so much there for us to read and interpret as it is there to interpret and read us. We don't go to the Bible to use techniques to understand it. We come before the Bible and allow it to read us and tell us who we are and tell us where we fit in the story. And as it turns out, again, if you pay attention to Psalm 1 and 2, it turns out you're not the blessed man and neither am I. The blessed man is God's chosen Messiah. It's God's chosen leader. And unfortunately, we might wind up being the scoffers or the cynical, rebellious kings who try to throw off the Messiah's rule. Hopefully, we're the congregation of the righteous. But again, how do we know? All right, how do we know who we are? I want to read a quote by a somewhat wise man. Who said, I think we never become really and genuinely our entire and honest selves until we are dead. And not then until we have been dead years and years. People ought to start out dead. Then they would be honest so much earlier. It was Mark Twain. And I think Mark Twain was on to something pretty good there. He was on to something uh, pretty wise. So again... How do, we, um, how do we figure out who we are? Um, for this, I want to turn to Jesus. Um, Jesus came in his ministry with two implicit questions. And the two implicit questions are this. Who do, who do you perceive yourself to be? Who do you think you are? And the second question is, who do you perceive God to be? Who do you think God is? And both of these are interconnected. They're both important. Who God is and who you are. They're, they're not a separable thing, but they're intimately and organically connected. 
And Jesus basically comes in particular to his disciples to say, you guys don't know who God is and what he's like. And you guys, therefore, don't know who you are and who you were created to be. And Jesus in particular comes to precipitate a crisis in his disciples' lives that allows them to see themselves and see what's really in them and then allows them to see God. And related to Twain, it's a kind of a death. All right, it's a kind of a death. So just take Peter as an example. Jesus came and he knew that Peter did not really understand who God his father was. And he didn't understand what was inside of him. Peter partly knew who God was. He partly understood who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was God's chosen one. But the problem is Peter projected onto that word Messiah what he would be if he were Messiah. Does that make sense? This is the problem. He said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. But then he filled out that word with the word Messiah with what he would be if he were Messiah. And what he would be if he were Messiah meant avoiding the cross at all costs. And so, so Peter would have made himself a king like these rebellious kings in Psalm 2, ultimately. And Jesus knows that. Peter would have been one of those rebel kings. He did not know that God's king would be a suffering servant. And this is why in that episode in Matthew chapter 16, when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, then he goes on to say, but you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus rebukes him sharply. So he didn't know God. He didn't know God would send a suffering servant. And he didn't know himself. Even if everyone else denies you, I will remain faithful. Peter had no idea what was inside of him. He had no idea the depths that were inside of him. And Jesus did. From the get-go, Jesus knew what was in there. And by the way, we're not talking about Myers-Briggs personality tests here. When we say, who am I? We're not talking about those things, introvert, extrovert, whatever. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about something else. We're talking about the deep, dark corners of our hearts that we don't see and that we can't see. Jesus says, Peter, do you know what's in you? Do you know what really motivates you? Jesus did, but Peter didn't. Peter, or Jesus knew that we are, most of us, strangers to ourselves. Most of us not really seeing in the depths of our heart. And Jesus precipitates this crisis where he showed Peter what was in his heart. Peter denied his teacher and his best friend, left him to be crucified and shamed. And then Jesus comes to Peter and shows him who he is, that he knew all along what he would do. He saw what he did and he restored him and welcomed him. He showed him who God is. He showed him what God is like. God forgave him and knew all along all this terrible stuff that was in him. Knowing that Jesus knew the worst about him and still loved him, Peter could begin a lifelong process of being honest about himself before God. That make sense? Knowing that Jesus knew the worst about Peter, and probably more than was revealed at, when, when Peter rejected Jesus, knowing that Jesus knew that and still loved him and forgave him, it opens him up to a lifelong process of being honest about himself before God. And I think that's the key to finding out who you are is this lifelong process of being honest about yourself before God. 
What it says in Psalm 1 that I'm trying to drill down on is the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows their way. It sounds like, therefore, he doesn't know the wicked. And I think in some sense that true. that is true. We don't know ourselves, but God does. And we're invited to open ourselves up to him. Both Judas and Peter faced terrible things about themselves. Here's the difference between them. Peter stayed close to Jesus. And Judas left his presence. And the invitation that Jesus is giving us is, you don't know yourself, you don't know my father, but stay with me. And I'll show you my father. And I'll show you yourself. And I'll change you and I'll transform you. It's going to sound like a a real tangent, but when you think about the Tower of Babel, when you think about what the builders of the Tower of Babel were after, God judges what they do. What was their error? What was the error of the builders of the Tower of Babel? Was it trying to get to heaven? I don't think it was trying to get to heaven. We might say it was trying to get to heaven unaided, just on human steam. But notice that the joke in Scripture when it talks about the Tower of Babel. They built this tower to heaven, and the text tells us that God said, let's go down and see what they're doing. It's a joke because their effort to reach heaven is something that God has to go down to see. But the builders of Babel, I think this was their error. This is what's in the text. They, it's a surprisingly modern error. They were make, building a tower to do what? Make a name for themselves construct an identity on what they had done and on what they had accomplished to draw attention to themselves by their gifts and what they were able to do. And notice, too, that God then calls, after he scatters the, tower, the builders of the Tower of Babel, he calls Abraham away from a city very much like Babel to a place that he said he would show him. And he gives him a promise, and his promise, there's several parts of the promise, but the thing I want to draw our attention to is this. I will make your name great. You walk with me, and I'll give you a name. The builders of the Tower of Babel tried to make a name for themselves, tried to create themselves, tried to define themselves. You walk with me, and I will give you a great name. See, we're dependent, and our identity is entirely dependent on our creator. Abraham didn't make a name for himself. He let God give him a name. Later on in Abraham's life, God says, walk before me and be perfect, which doesn't mean, and I think we hear that and we think it means, walk before me perfectly. Imagine the anxiety performance, or the, anxi- the performance anxiety there. I don't think God means walk before me perfectly. I think he means stay open before me and I will perfect you. Live your life before me and I will show you who I am and I will show you who you are. So the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows what's in us. He knows the worst that is in us. And he loves us and wants to help us with that. And here's what happens in life. Life is hard. Life brings pressure. And life reveals what's inside of us that we didn't know was there, but that he knows is there. And the promise is that if we stay with him, he can know us and he can remove those things little by little bit by bit through the course of our lives. And the other promise in this is that he knows what he made us to be. He knows the idea he had in mind when he made each one of us. And only he can see that design through to perfection in his day.
He designed each one of us to be unique, but see, he has the uniqueness in his heart and his mind, and we can only receive that as we walk with him. We don't have to discover that individually. We don't have to make that happen. It's his idea, and we just need to trust him and walk with him. He loves us into being what he made us to be. Not by performance, but by trusting him and walking with him. And I think this breaks all the futile patterns of identity around us that we're prone to want to fall into. Proving ourselves, proving who we are by by, by these various means. And I think all these various means ultimately create identity crises. Right? If I lose this thing that has made me me, am I still me? Right? But God knows who we are, and the promise of the gospel is that he will see the work he has begun in us through to completion. Amen? Paul said this. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I receive who I am and who, what he's called me to be as a gift. I receive my identity not as something I am conformed and forced into or something I have to create myself, but something I receive from God as a gift. Jesus famously said, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think we could translate it this way. Whoever wishes to preserve his own perception of himself, his own self-made identity will lose it. But whoever loses his self-defined self because of me will find me and the self I created him to be. Amen? Jesus had more in mind than simply loss. In fact, it's really heavily weighted on the promise that he wants to give us. And of course, the ultimate goal is not ourselves, but knowing him, coming to know him. But it is only as we walk openly before him as Abraham did that we find that. So back to the beginning, back to Psalm 1, back to Psalm 2. Jesus is the blessed, happy man. He is the one who knows how life works and is truly happy and truly blessed. He's the king. That God has chosen to rule his universe. And we have all been rebel kings. Wrong about God and wrong about ourselves. And therefore opposed to him. We are ultimately dependent creatures. We can't build towers of Babel. We can't create our own identities. We cannot be the blessed man on our own. We can't know God without his help. We can't know ourselves without his help. But the promise that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 gives us, the promise of the gospel is that we can take refuge in the blessed man. We can connect ourselves with that blessed man. We can become a part of the congregation of the righteous through trust in him and attachment to him. We can learn from him how to give ourselves to his cause and to his people. We can be grafted into Jesus, that tree who bears fruit, and we can bear fruit because of that. We can begin the lifelong process of being known by him and being changed into the kind of person he made us to be by his love. And yes, Twain was right. Some of that involves death, but it's death to a shallow, unrealistic self that we've created or received from other people, not the self that he wants us to be. So may we learn to walk with him. I want to I want to read here at the end, before we come to the table, uh, a promise out of the book of Revelation. In the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, uh, in the letter to the church at Pergamum, it says this. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I believe, in part, that stone and that name is what God intended us to be when he made us. And when he gives us that stone, it's like, you're done. Through the grace I've given you, through walking with me, you have become what I intended you to be. And you have something to tell all of my children that only you can tell them about me. So may we come to know him so that we can come to find out who he made us to be so that we can give glory to him. Amen. Amen.